it's actually really worrying. I actually have no idea most of the time about the errors in diagnosis which I have made. What I do know from the literature is that I will have made plenty of errors. You're listening to Medical Protection Podcast, Real World Series. My name is Jayla Simsek and I'll be your host for the next five episodes. By way of background, I'm a case manager in London and I've been working for MPS for around five years. I give advice to clinicians on a range of medical legal issues. Today, I'll be joined by Dr. Stephen Priestley. He's a senior medical educator with the Cognitive Institute and delivers workshops on safety and reliability, speaking up and professional accountability across healthcare organisations in Australia, New Zealand and Singapore. Stephen is an active clinician and holds the role of Senior Staff Specialist with the Sunshine Coast Hospital in Queensland, Australia. Stephen, thank you so much for joining me today. And for my own sake, could I put forward a very simple question? Could you tell us about diagnostic error? Well, thanks very much, Jalen, and thanks so much for the invitation. Um, to talk about diagnostic error. It is one of my areas of of interest uh, as a senior medical educator with Cognitive Institute, but also, as you said, uh, an actively practicing clinician. It's interesting around diagnostic errors. They're actually almost a new frontier in some ways of patient safety because for many, many years, diagnostic errors were almost a blind spot in the patient safety world. And it's really been in the last 10 to 15 years that there's been an explosion of interest and study and research in relation to the consequences of diagnostic errors, but also, I guess, their their causes and their rates. And most importantly, probably what are the strategies that we can use to mitigate the effects of diagnostic errors or to improve our diagnostic accuracy. In 2015, the National Academy of Medicine defined diagnostic error as part of a a big report called Improving Diagnosis in Healthcare. And diagnostic error is defined as either the failure to establish an accurate and timely explanation of the patient's health problems or the failure to communicate that to the patient. And as a result of diagnostic errors, of course, appropriate treatment may be delayed or omitted altogether, or inappropriate or harmful treatment might be initiated, so much so at the expense of the patient. And of course, I guess that more broadly speaking, the healthcare system might shoulder some burden in that in the form of increased costs due to less effective and more expensive testing and treatments. And then, of course, potentially, if an error is made or a diagnosis is delayed, having to provide more complex and expensive treatments when a later diagnosis is made of a condition that might have progressed significantly. I hope that helps in a a broad sort of definition of diagnostic error. That's really interesting. And from the sounds of it, it can happen to any of us. For our listeners and myself, what is the difference in error and delay? Could you also tell us about your personal experiences on dealing with diagnostic error? Yeah, it's a good question. And it's been very challenging, actually, to tease out the rates and the data, because one of the challenges is that patients move between different healthcare providers over weeks, days and weeks and years. And in fact, a diagnosis may be made 
months or even years after it was potentially first able to be made. Equally, there are diagnoses that when the patient first presents, might be there might be diseases that are undiagnosable at that time because diagnosis is um, it's both a process and an endpoint. Mm. So in terms of rates, it has been difficult to measure and it does vary across specialties and it varies across care um, care systems, including, for, for example, hospital, in hospitals versus in private practice or in ambulatory care. Most studies at the moment are suggesting that there's a rate of about one out of nine inpatient admissions experience a diagnostic error and about one in 20 or 5% of outpatient encounters uh, include a diagnostic error. But there are some uh, you know, there are some variations in that depending on the definitions and things. We actually get a bit of information, regrettably, from autopsy studies. Um, and of course, autopsy studies describe a rate of misdiagnosis of around 8 to 9%. And what I mean by that is that there was a significant diagnosis that is found at autopsy that may have explained the patient's demise. It's obviously too late at that time. Um, for that misdiagnosis to be captured. And when they have looked at those, um, those diagnostic errors, they do have surmised or speculated that about half of them, had they been identified during the patient's life, may well have resulted in the patient not passing away from that particular diagnosis. But I guess deaths, of course, are the, the tip of the iceberg. Most diagnostic errors don't result in death, but many may result in, in severe harm. And that National Academy of Medicine report suggested that all of us will likely experience a meaningful diagnostic error in our lifetime, and if not us, one of our loved ones. So it's quite common. Yeah, yeah, that, that's really interesting. And the, the fact that it can actually be happen to any of us at any, any given moment. Um, now, just for our listeners, I do want to ask a very simple question as well. Um, what is the difference between error and delay and, and, and safety about how to prevent diagnostic error? What, what would you say is the difference? And can you tell us a little bit also about your personal experiences, um, if you have any with diagnostic error, please? Oh, there's a lot of questions there. Uh, I guess in its most in its most basic term, a diagnostic error occurs when a patient's diagnosis is missed altogether, when it's inappropriately delayed, or it's wrong, and that can sometimes only be measured by the eventual appreciation of what the true diagnosis is. These categories of missed, delayed, and wrong they overlap extensively. If I give you an example um, in primary care that some of might resonate for some of our listeners, um, in a paper that comes from 2016 from Dr. Singh and Dr. Graeber, uh, when they were sort of describing the global burden of diagnostic errors in general practice, if we think about errors in diagnosing a cancer of the colon, the diagnosis of cancer of the colon could be considered missed if a patient presents to a primary care practitioner when it's not considered or not diagnosed despite alarming symptoms, it could be wrong, a wrong diagnosis. The bleeding from the, from the rectum might be diagnosed as hemorrhoids rather than actually coming from a cancer, 
or it might be a delayed diagnosis that the patient had an abnormal laboratory test result, like an iron deficiency anemia that wasn't followed up, but that test wasn't interpreted in the right way, or in fact may not have been communicated back to the doctor looking after the patient. So it's hard sometimes to distinguish between the three. I guess people have thought more broadly around the diagnostic process and where the errors might occur. Uh, and, and that's sort of the five steps that are described in the diagnostic process that I'm happy to share with you at, at some point if you would like. In terms of me personally and diagnostic errors, well, as an emergency specialist, uh, it's actually really worrying. I actually have no idea most of the time about the errors in diagnosis which I have made. What I do know from the literature is that I will have made plenty of errors one of the challenges that we have is that we don't have well-developed feedback systems to tell us what has happened to our patients and what might be an eventual diagnosis. And that makes it hard to actually learn or to get better at diagnosis. And that's not just confined to emergency medicine. That's across the board. We don't have good feedback systems to inform us when we might have made a misdiagnosis. I certainly know some of the misdiagnoses I've made because uh, a kindly colleague has come up, to, come up to me and said, remember that patient, and then informed me of what the diagnosis was. But that's not a very systematic way of learning. Yeah, yeah. Because you've mentioned about the that there, there needs to be appropriate feedback system, can you tell us about what are some systems that we can implement to actually prevent this from happening as one thing being feedback as you've said um what are some other ways that we we, we could prevent this yeah that's a good question um i guess so, there are some electronic trigger tools that will highlight when patients return to a hospital system or potentially into a practice um and end up with a different diagnosis as to the one that they left perhaps a month ago with, um, and that occurs in hospitals, so representations and things can form part of a, a feedback system. One of the most effective ways I've seen this working is really about um, is establishing a culture in the, the practice or the unit or the hospital that you're working in to more openly discuss diagnostic errors. As one of the challenges has been for some time that um, doctors tend not to want to talk about diagnostic errors that they've made. They view that really as a as a failing of their own personal expertise. And when we don't talk about things for fear of um, or being embarrassed or feeling as if your errors will be exposed, then it's very hard to learn from things. So one of the most effective ways of actually improving our ways of learning is actually to normalise discussion about diagnostic errors and to take from that that it is normal to make errors because it's actually a very complex business with lots of different inputs and lots of different interfaces and often lots of different people involved. So simply by talking about errors and learning about them, what, what is called by some folk a, a diagnostic safety culture um, is a really powerful way of getting some feedback and then being able to reflect on one's own practice as well. I'm sure a lot of our listeners would find that really helpful to to hear that. You mentioned that there is uh, different inputs and outputs um, that, that cause this. So with inputs or rather causes, what would you say are the 
causes of of these diagnostic errors? Is it systems? Is it human? Is there anything else? Yes, um, I, I guess diagnosis is actually one of the most complex processes in medical care, and so it's not it's not surprising that errors in the process occur. Um, most diagnostic errors are a combination of system-based issues, environmental or contextual issues, and cognitive issues. And it's, it's uncommon in my experience that a diagnostic error, is there's a single cause that underpins a diagnostic error. When I talk about uh, a system-based issue, the sort of thing I mean is uh, a communication or documentation error occurring during a handover or a transfer of care which can affect the amount or type of information the next provider has at the time of diagnosis. In terms of those environmental factors, it's really the aspects of the physical environment that one is working within when they're seeing the patient, and that might include things such as lack of equipment or lack of testing ability, uh, or even an appropriate space to properly be able to examine a patient, um, or the ability to actually reach out for a second opinion and seek other additional expertise is not always available. And then there's cognitive issues. That a cognitive error involves our, our thought process, such as prematurely latching onto a diagnosis based on fairly flimsy evidence, but evidence that, it's ha- that is at hand and potentially abandoning the search for new or other evidence, uh, or not actively engaging and listening to patients and families about persistent or worsening symptoms. And and there's been a lot of activity and there's a lot of new information stemming from the work in diagnostic errors about how doctors think. What is our process of clinical reasoning when we're trying to come to to a diagnosis? How do we collect the information? How do we then interpret some features of the history or features of the examination? And what weight do we give to certain pieces of information over others? And then, of course, how do we choose which is the best test to do, if any are needed? And how good are we at interpreting test results? And then, involve, you know, some of us involve the patient and the family for far more than others, and some of us involve other clinicians in the healthcare team far more than others. There's quite a lot of areas in which we're learning about how doctors think. What we do know is we're prone to cognitive biases, um, and there's uh, a number of those that get in the way of coming up with an accurate diagnosis. And then, as I mentioned, what effect does the environment that we're working in have on our diagnostic accuracy? So lots of different factors to consider. There's quite a few that, that you mentioned in there. Just for for me to understand, does it occur more frequently in certain patients or particular illnesses? Yeah, that's a good question. The answer to that is uh, yes, absolutely. Atypical symptoms is a, is a real challenge for us as clinicians in making a, a diagnosis because what we learn in medical school and what we learn a lot of the time is actually the textbook descriptions of a particular diagnosis. And regrettably, patients have never read the ta- textbooks, so they will often present with symptoms that are atypical, which can make it quite challenging for us to come up with the right diagnosis. We rarely misdiagnose things like strokes that when they present with one-sided weakness, but diagnosing a stroke in a patient presenting with dizziness and vomiting is intrinsically trickier 
And mixed diagnosis in that setting, of course, is more frequent. You know, I mean, there's a huge cognitive burden in trying to remember the typical and atypical presentations of, of literally thousands of diseases. And uh, clinicians are always under time pressures. So that's one of the factors leading to high numbers of diagnostic errors. There are other vulnerable groups of patients and those that are un aren't able to communicate as well. Um, and I think the vulnerable cohorts of patients is those that don't have good access to health services and may well leave their conditions later and making it more difficult to diagnose. So there might be diagnostic delays in that situation. And then I guess the uh, our usual vulnerable populations are those that are homeless and those that are um, suffering from substance abuse and with non-English speaking backgrounds and a range, depending on the country, obviously, and a range of factors like that can all contribute to a higher incidence of diagnostic errors in certain cohorts of patients. That That's really interesting. And just a final question that I want to ask is, um, what, what are we doing about this? Or is there anything that we can do about this? What would be your suggestion to our listeners? Um, pleasingly, there's an enormous amount of work going in in a, in a variety of different areas in improving our diagnostic accuracy. Um, and, and the work that's being done is squarely focused on improving our own clinical decision-making processes, uh, recognising and then mitigating our own personal risks for making flawed diagnoses, and in better understanding how the systems in which we work might help or harm our ability to make accurate diagnoses. We've got to move um, from trying to fix individual clinicians who will continue to make errors, although we believe we can mitigate some of those errors, um, but we've got to move to creating system-level solutions to reverse system-level errors. The sorts of strategies that, in, that are coming up, that are in use, actually come from a wide range of disciplines. They come from cognitive scientists, linguists, psychologists, system scientists and educationalists, and, of course, expert clinicians. And it also comes from the world of IT which has developed some extremely valuable software that allows the generation of differential diagnoses when given a patient's demographics and symptoms and signs. And increasingly, clinical decision support is also being built into this software, as well as directly into electronic medical records to provide clinicians with real-time cognitive aids. There's also work being done in artificial intelligence uh, in, in assisting clinical decision support in clinical reasoning. And I think that has a, a potentially a great future. And then at a human level, there is a significant focus on the way doctors think. And in particular, things like deliberate reflection, taking some time to deliberately reflect on a diagnosis, a so-called diagnostic timeout, and also normalising the use of second opinions from colleagues as well as another real strategy. Mark Graeber, um, who will be appear, will I'll have the opportunity to speak with later on in our podcast series around diagnostic errors, has championed the use of the diagnostic team. So taking information and advice around diagnosis from other healthcare providers involved in the patient's care. And by that I mean our nursing staff, our pharmacist, our physiotherapist, and of course not least from the patient and their family 
who are often in the best position to ensure that things are moving along in the right direction towards coming to a diagnosis, particularly when they might be going in between lots of different healthcare providers. And I mentioned the diagnostic safety culture type of work that's been done with Carmel Croc in Melbourne, in Australia. Um, and that's where that discussion around diagnostic errors and, and, and learning from things is so important. Patients, of course, also are increasingly getting involved in their own care, which is a positive thing. And many systems now have portals in which patients can see all their medical records and all their results and actually can be advocates for themselves as they move through our very complex healthcare system by saying things like, that test has come back with whatever. Uh, what's the impact of that? Have you checked on that test? Um, uh, that information in my health record is not correct. It must have been cut and pasted from somewhere else, but I can tell you it's not correct because unfortunately faulty information in, in electronic medical records can be a source of diagnostic error. So I guess there's a whole range of different strategies um, that are being uh, trialled, which is very exciting. There is obviously various elements contributing to diagnostic error from the sound of it, ranging from unconscious biases, human error, or simply the systems that we use. And I think it's very exciting as well as very positive that we are doing things to prevent this from happening and to learn from this area as well. And I would particularly like to see how artificial intelligence actually develops in this field. That was a very fascinating conversation and thank you so much for joining me today, Stephen, as well as sharing your knowledge with our listeners. That is the end of today's podcast. If you would like a certificate for listening to go towards your CPD or to learn more about who you were listening to, please take a look in the podcast description. I've been your host, Jalen Simsek, and I'll see you in the next episode. Take care and goodbye.